Welcome to Louisiana Considered. It's Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, a public education campaign compares saving Louisiana's coastal land to cooking a gumbo. We'll talk with the Environmental Defense Fund about how the concept of adaptive management and the complex and ever-changing science of the coast can be made accessible to the public. We'll also speak with Haley R. Snow, a Cajun-born physician assistant turned commercial astronaut turned author. We'll talk about her journey and the inspiration she hopes to provide as the first person with a prosthesis to go to space. But first, New Orleans Police Superintendent Sean Ferguson is stepping down to retire at the end of the year. This was announced yesterday by Mayor Latoya Cantrell, and now the process begins for finding a new police chief during a critical time for New Orleans. Joining us to tell us more about it is Louisiana Public Radio News Director Patrick Madden. Thanks for being here. Good afternoon, Adam. So, Patrick, what do we know about the timing of Chief Ferguson's departure and why he's retiring at the structure? Right. So, Adam, we learned we learned this news yesterday from a, a press release announcing Ferguson's retirement from the mayor's office, which was slightly unusual. There was there hadn't been any public indication that that this was coming. Although earlier in the week, Council, Council Member J.P. Morrell ha- had criticized Ferguson and had said that NOPD needed new leadership. Adam, obviously the city has been experiencing significant public safety challenges uh, over these past few years. You know, like many big cities uh, during this pandemic, uh, violent crime has spiked here in New Orleans with stories of uh, the murders, shootings, carjackings. I mean, these have been major major stories, major crises, uh, crises here in New Orleans. And, and New Orleans even once again uh, was earning the, the dubious distinction of having one of the highest uh, murder rates per capita in the country. And at the same time, with the police force, there's been a, a tremendous morale uh, retention issues, um, and there's been a lot of policy suggestions on how to attract and retain more officers in New Orleans and there's also this federal consent decree, which the department has been under since 2012. So all of that being said, it's been a pretty rocky tenure for Ferguson, who has spent uh, more than two decades on the force. Uh, he, he became police superintendent in 2019. And Adam, I don't cover the police department as a reporter, but, you know, but I'm here to give you some of the sort of big through lines for this story. But really, it, it, I think the, this issue of, of violent crime how the city is trying to get a handle on it. Well, it's become a very big, not only just a policy story, but but a political story here in New Orleans. And I think that's, you know, one of the big reasons there will be uh, a new police chief. And as for Ferguson, he held a press conference last hour uh, and made a couple of key points, which which I'll talk about briefly. One, uh, he said he said he was not forced out, that, that this was his decision and he's walking out on, on his own terms. Uh, he, you know, he also said, you know, they they need to stop the political gamesmanship. I mentioned some of the the criticism from uh, the council earlier this week, and I think that's reference to that. And he also said that the best person for this job is within the police department. So uh, uh, he's indicating that he thinks his successor should be from someone within uh, NOPD. It's interesting because there's been some talk about that. So this, you mentioned this is an interesting time for this to be announced. What's next here? How soon will the next chief be put in place? Right. So the timing here is, is pretty interesting. You may recall during the November elections that, that in New Orleans, there was a big amendment to the city charter that was passed by voters, which gave the New Orleans City Council authority to approve, disapprove 
the mayor's big department heads and appointments, like the police chiefs. Uh, but crucially, crucially, this this new law doesn't kick in until January 1st. So again, think about the timing here of Ferguson stepping down right now. But but the, the new law that requires you know approval from the council that doesn't kick in until January 1st. So a lot of sort of back and forth already by the council to the mayor saying, hey, let's hold off on naming a permanent successor un- until January so that we can sort of have our role that voters want us to have in this. Louisiana Public Radio News Director Patrick Madden, thanks for outlining this for us. Thank you, Adam. This is Louisiana Considered. In September of 2021, Haley Arsenault became the youngest American to travel to space at the age of 29. While she no longer holds that specific title, the St. Francisville native and cancer survivor is also known, also the first known Cajun in space and the first person in space with a prosthetic body part. And when she's not orbiting Earth, she is a physician assistant at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. She has captured this amazing journey in her new book. It's called Wild Ride, a memoir of IV drips and rocket ships. She joins us now for more. Haley, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first off, I understand it's been your birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. 31 is off to a good start. (laughs) So you're turning 31, but at the time of the space flight, you were 29 at the time you were the youngest American to travel to space. So how exactly do you get to space? How did you come across this opportunity? Well, I got a random phone call one day saying, do you want to go to space? And it was not a spam call. Um, But Kind of to give a backstory, um, I I love St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. I was diagnosed with bone cancer at the age of 10, and I was treated for a year at St. Jude and just absolutely fell in love with the hospital. I committed at age 10 to work at St. Jude when I got older, and then I, I became a physician assistant. I got my dream job working as a PA with leukemia lymphoma patients, um, and I thought, you know, everything in my life had kind of come together. Um, and you can imagine how shocked I was when in January of 2021, I get a call from the chief of staff of St. Jude telling me about a new fundraising opportunity for the hospital. Um, it would be the, this actually a mission to space called inspiration Four, which would be the first all civilian mission to go to space. And they asked me to be part of it, to be the St. Jude ambassador on the mission. And, uh, so I, I was shocked. Of course, I say yes right away. And right after that, I I started training for space. So this was a fundraiser, but as a medical professional, you also had an official role on this mission. I was the medical officer of the mission. And um, with my background as a PA, I was chosen to be the medical officer. So I went through some specific training about really learning about the physiology of the human body and microgravity and space and um, and how to to handle certain symptoms that would come about, especially as we had limited resources in space. Um, and then I like to say I saved the mission. Um, when some of my crew members got sick, um, I gave them some shots in space. Was space travel something that always interested you, something you always wanted to do? To be honest, it's not something I had thought much about. Um, my brother has always been really into space and we went to NASA a few times over the years because he wanted to go. And, you know, I thought it was cool. Like every kid thinks space is cool, but really I could never have been a NASA astronaut because, um, 
to treat my bone cancer, they had to remove part of my bone and replace it with an internal prosthesis. And so this would have disqualified me from becoming a traditional NASA astronaut. Um, so really, I hadn't ever thought much about that. And so I was so surprised when I was asked to go to space and become an astronaut. And in your memoir, you discuss your journey with bone cancer as a young person. You were treated at St. Jude's Children's Hospital, where you now work as a physician assistant. Why did you decide to go from former patient to current employee? What's it like to work with patients who are in the same position that you were once in? I just felt so at home at St. Jude during my treatment. And um, I felt a lot of hope when I was going through that. And I really credited the staff and um, they made me look forward to going to the hospital. They became like a family to us and I just fell in love. And so I knew that I wanted to work at St. Jude. I got my dream job and it's even better than I could have imagined. Um, I love my job so much. I work with the bravest kids in the world, the most incredible families, and um, and they really inspire me every day. And they inspired me as I was training for space because training was not the easiest. And uh, and I just thought about the kids. I thought about how much hope this mission would give them. We're speaking with Haley R. Snow, a physician assistant at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, also a commercial astronaut and author, Louisiana native. Um, as we mentioned, you became the first person with a prosthetic body part in space, uh, a portion of your leg. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? That was, um, it was very exciting for me to become this this first. And I thought about how many people would be coming after with prosthetic body parts, but I kind of, I felt a weight on my shoulders, but in a beautiful way, like in an empowering way that it was just, it was so exciting and important to be the first um, because ultimately space travel is going to be opened up to more and more people. Um, traditionally, NASA government astronauts have been physically perfect, but um, but Inspiration4 was, was a big step in opening space flight up um, to people who aren't physically perfect, to most people. Um, and so it's exciting to see who else will fly. Tell me about that, because as you mentioned, as far as NASA is concerned, your prosthesis disqualifies you from being an astronaut. Uh, more and more these days, there are arguments that there should be more people with disabilities in space, not just because of inclusion, but because often people with disabilities have certain skills that could be helpful in a spacecraft. For example, sometimes it can get noisy and hard to talk and communicate in a spacecraft, and it might be helpful to have astronauts who communicate in sign language. And, for instance, being in space is hard on the body. Many astronauts spend hours a day on a treadmill to counter against atrophy in the muscles. And some argue that there should be more astronauts who use wheelchairs because maintaining leg strength might be less of a concern in that case. Why do you think it's important to have people with disabilities in space? What kind of assets do they bring that would otherwise be overlooked? I think it's very important. And and from a diversity standpoint, for sure. And also just kind of looking personally and like at my mission, I brought things to the table, skills and histories that some of my crew members didn't have. We all work together in such a beautiful way, but I am a firm believer that space travel should and will be opened up to more and more people. I want to talk a little bit more about the book. When did it dawn on you that your personal history was one that other people might actually be interested in and possibly inspired by? Well, I was really excited when I was first offered to go to space, thinking what it would do for kids with cancer all over the world. But it was kind of after my mission was announced 
that I started hearing from people with with other backgrounds, some people going through a difficult time with their health. Um, others were people who had opportunities and felt empowered to say yes to them because I had said yes to going to space, saying that they were inspired by me and by this mission. And and so that's when it really dawned on me and it made me feel um feel very impacted and want to share my story even further. What would you say you want readers to take away from reading your book, your overall message? Wild Ride is a story of hope and not just for those who have gone through cancer, but anyone who's been through a tough time. And I know that we all have in different ways. And and a big message of Wild Ride is the importance of holding on to that hope because there will be better days ahead. And I like to say better days than you can even imagine. And then another message that really I wanted to come through with Wild Ride is the importance of saying yes to opportunities that could change your life, even if the opportunities scare you. Because going to space in a way that was scary for me, but I I saw the bigger picture and I still said yes. And that yes has made all the difference in my life. Haley, before we go... You were the first person with a prosthetic body part in space, the first Cajun in space, the youngest American in space. With all these firsts and your other accomplishments, uh, what what are you most proud of? I am most proud of being the first pediatric cancer survivor in space because of the impact that it's had on on kids going through cancer treatment, but especially my patients. And um, and now they all want to be astronauts. They tell me they want to see for themselves if there are aliens out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love that it's empowered them and they feel that they can accomplish their dreams. And um, and so just even just one kid now wanting to become an astronaut has made the whole process so worth it. I was going to ask if you tell your patients, hey, I'm an astronaut. Look at what you can do. It sounds like, yes, you tell them and yes, they know. And uh, it sounds like you provide some inspiration that they can do things they would imagine. I hope to. And, and you know, I, I always introduce myself as their PA. The astronaut thing sometimes comes up later, but it's just a really special thing to share with them. And I always tell them, you can do this too. You can do whatever you want to do. Haley Arsenault is a physician assistant at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, a commercial astronaut, a new author, and Louisiana native. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Louisiana Considered. With so much conversation about coastal land loss in Louisiana, especially the Barataria Basin, sediment diversions have become uh, have become uh, something of a forefront as one of the tools to preserve and build up land to make South Louisiana more resilient to storms and rising sea levels. But there's a lot of technical science behind it, and with news frequently coming out about the sediment diversion plan or the next study criticizing or bolstering it, the water can get a little muddied. The Mississippi River Delta Restoration Program at the Environmental Defense Fund sees how educating the public is important when it comes to not just the environment, but the political decisions that the public is sometimes asked to make about how the state goes forward with its coastal policy. Rachel Rohde with the Environmental Defense Fund is here to talk with us about the work they're doing to break the science of sediment diversion into something a little more approachable. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So just as a reminder for everybody, let's start with the thousand foot view on the coastal problem and what the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority is doing to address it and how sediment diversions should work. 
Yeah, so Louisiana is losing a lot of land at an unprecedented rate due to natural subsidence. Um, a lot of the sediment in the Mississippi River is, is going directly out into the Gulf of Mexico rather than being connected to adjacent wetlands. Um, due to the levying of the Mississippi River, um, historically, you know, we've been able to control the river um, that way and, and protect communities from flooding. And so what CPRA is trying to do as the central authority in the state dealing with coastal protection and restoration is, is utilizing a bunch of different restoration techniques and one of those being sediment diversions. Um, this is just one tool in their toolbox, right? We know they do marsh creation and ridge restoration, but um, sediment diversions are um, not a new concept to Louisiana or to CPRA. They are something that's been knocked around for several decades. We have a lot of research um, on sediment diversions and we have a few examples already that exist that we can kind of learn from. Um, and we have natural crevices in the river that are forming um, all the time, even now, where we're seeing sediment, uh, we're seeing the river break through the river bank and, and depositing sediment into adjacent wetlands. And so, a sediment diversion as a tool is essentially trying to do just exactly what that crevice is doing. It's essentially um, putting a gated structure within the levee system along the Mississippi River um, and allowing to harness the, the natural power of the river and the sediment that already exists within it and, and reconnecting it and diverting that water and sediment to the adjacent wetlands that it historically was connected to. The hope there is that by allowing the, to divert sediment, right, we can hopefully build up land, elevate, and we'll have vegetation grow, we'll increase, um, you know, the habitat quality, water quality, and allow uh, hopefully to not only build land, but sustain the land that exists today. And I understand the Environmental Defense Fund is taking everything we know about what's behind sediment diversions and wrapping it into a package that's a little more accessible. You're comparing it to a gumbo. So cooking, that's something a lot of Louisianans are familiar with and know a lot about, but it might be hard to see how cooking relates to ecosystems and the environment. Can you explain that gumbo analogy? So we found out that it, communicating what, um, not only what a diversion is, but also where people fit into the process was something that was really missing. And we know that adaptive management is a, a part of how a diversion is going to be operated. And so we wanted to create a resource at EDF and with the Mississippi River Delta Coalition to be able to communicate what that looks like for folks. So um, I'm a Midwesterner at heart, so I knew very little about gumbo, but my colleagues <laughs> who are um, from down south really felt like there was a strong connection to this analogy that folks in Louisiana would be able to understand it, right? It's something they're familiar with. And so the idea is the stages of adaptively managing a diversion are really similar to how you perfect a gumbo recipe. So you start with your, your planning, right? You're, you're getting the recipe, maybe it's a family recipe, and you're seeing the ingredients and the steps and notes for how to cook it. And in adaptive management for a diversion, this involves um, the historical data and monitoring that's gone on along the coast. All the information that's been collected, you kind of already have a little bit to work off of for a diversion on and maybe how best to operate it. And then you move on to actually, um, you know, doing is the next phase. So you make your groceries, you cook the gumbo and you kind of taste it along the way. Is the flavor right? Is the consistency right? Do I have the right roux color? Um, with adaptive management for diversions, this involves how you operate it, right? You put it into effect and then you monitor what um, 
those operations, how those impacted different factors within the environment. So did we build land? What was the response of vegetation? What was the salinity? Those kinds of different factors that you're looking for. And then lastly, you learn. Uh, you know, this is where with gumbo, right? You've made your gumbo, you give it to your family members, you serve it to your friends um, and you get their feedback. You know, was it too spicy? Um, I'm allergic to a certain ingredient, right? You get all that feedback and input so that you can make it better next time. We're speaking with Rachel Rohde, manager of Climate Resilient Coasts and Watersheds for the Environmental Defense Fund, part of the Mississippi River Delta Restoration Coalition. We're talking about sediment diversion and how her organization is helping with educating the public about it, comparing this environmental and ecological process to cooking a gumbo. So tell me about this. An LSU study came out recently finding that there was land building, measurable land building going on in one location that's the target of a sediment diversion, the Davis Pond Freshwater Diversion. That study also showed, however, that a separate project did not build any land. However, it also showed it didn't lose any land. What's your reaction to that mixed news? So I think what we have on the, you know, the existing diversions we have on the landscape, those those are freshwater diversions. However, there's a lot we can learn from them. And, and CPRA certainly um, has been taking a lot of the monitoring um, and even operations plans for those diversions. And I think those are only going to help contribute to how do we effectively operate a sediment diversion, right? It's going to be a little bit different. Um, obviously, like I said, those are freshwater diversions that exist on the landscape. And, and this is what's being proposed are sediment diversions. So we want to utilize the sediment that's in the river. Um, how do we get the most sediment to adjacent wetlands? to water, um, right? We don't want to flood communities downstream. So there's going to be a balancing act of operating the diversion for times in the river when sediment's really high and utilizing that, taking advantage of that. And then, you know, when there are opportunities, when there's there's water that's really high in the river, but we know the sediment load isn't so high, then we're going to operate it differently so that we don't impact downstream communities. And finally, tell me how the EDF is putting this education program into action. We, so we, we recently, we've updated our website. We have a whole webpage now dedicated to understanding adaptive management. We have FAQs, kind of keeping it really basic for folks. Um, that's at mississippiriverdelta.org backslash adaptive management. Um, on there, you can find an infographic that explains really clearly the comparison between a gumbo recipe and an adaptive management plan. We also created a video that goes into a little bit more detail about each step of adaptive management. Um, and all of these tools have been translated in both Vietnamese and Spanish, because we know those are really important stakeholder groups uh, that are going to be impacted by the diversion. So we want to make sure they have these resources as well. And we're introducing these at various community meetings for folks to, to be able to engage with the state as well as other NGO partners um, really just understanding where they fit into this process. Rachel Rohde is Managing Director of Climate Resilient Coasts and Watersheds for the Environmental Defense Fund, part of the Mississippi River Delta Restoration Coalition. Rachel, thanks for your time today. Thanks. It's been great. That's been Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to Louisiana-born commercial astronaut Haley Arsenault and Rachel Rohde with the Environmental Defense Fund and our news director, 
Patrick Madden. On tomorrow's Louisiana Considered, tune in. We'll have an update on the state of medical marijuana in Louisiana, a report on rising anti-Semitism, and we'll hear a remembrance of NOLA-born actress Carol Sutton. That's all on tomorrow's Louisiana Considered with Carl Lingle. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.